OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Bosik, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today. We're always excited that we get to talk with another angel investor, uh, but I've got to work with Fosik over the last couple of months in one of uh, other investments. So I got to learn a bit about yourself and got excited at the opportunity to want to spend a few uh, minutes or we'll say another hour with you to learn a bit more about yourself and what you've been up to in the whole angel investment community. So maybe to start off, you can give us an idea of a little bit of your background, where you came from, what you've been doing, uh, and then how you got to where you are today. And then one other caveat, if you can share one thing about you that nobody would know, that would be brilliant. Okay, uh, thanks for having me. Um, I'm not sure if I'm excited yet. Hearing it will take one hour or more. Uh, briefly about myself, uh, 40 something years old, was born in then Soviet Union, currently Uzbekistan. Uh, in 2000, moved to Japan to study. Ended up working there as well after graduation. Uh, was planning to go back. Uh, happened to meet my wife there, so we decided to stay in Japan for a while. Uh, worked in solar company, then worked for the big corporate company in the semiconductors, which led me to the venture division within the same company. And after moving to Canada four years ago, I'm doing good solo, basically. That's probably a very short version of what I've been doing so far. Uh, some fact which nobody knows about me. That's a tough one. I'm a very public person. Everybody knows me. Uh, I guess I speak four languages decently well. That would be my native Uzbek, Russian, Japanese, and English. Perfect. Well, that's some information that people would know. And, and uh, what I find is it's a good little unique identifier. So when people come up to you, they'll say, hey, I speak languages, three languages too. So it's a good way for people to connect with somebody that they may not have a lot of things in common with, but there is one common ground that helps start a conversation. So uh, I'm a big fan of uh, finding that one unique thing that everybody can relate to. So uh, or just something to remember who you are, which is great. So uh, in our discussions, you chatted about uh, a few things that you've kind of done over time. And one of them was on raising funds. So I'd be interested to learn a little bit more about uh, in your past roles and in the businesses that you were part of, what was, is there a structure behind it or how did you go about uh, raising dollars inside of a business? Well, I was part of the relatively established startup. I joined it later on, not as a founder, just a normal employee in the financial department. That was a solar business, 2005, six. that was very hot topic. And we were expanding really fast. So we were trying to, I was in charge, uh, let's say of purchasing, which raw material was coming very, very short. And well, considering that from 2004, the price for silicon spiked from forty dollars to what, four hundred in two thousand six. Wow! Yeah, two thousand seven it was around four hundred. So yeah. we were trying to source the material, and one of the things was just to buy out the old factory, which is not working, and bring it up to the speed, improve, yeah. uh, put the new equipment, put the personnel in charge to make it, to make sure it's sufficient enough for the solar. And uh, well, other than just developing the project, uh, the financing obviously should have been secured. So we were looking at local venture funds. We were looking at big trading companies who might have been interested. Uh, it all came crashing down after the solar market basically collapsed in 2008, like everybody else in 2008. So we raised some funds. We just discharged it back to the investors and didn't go ahead with the plant because it was not much need by, at that time. Uh, 
the company actually folded like two years later because the competition from China was much more than we expected at that time. I was working in Japan. It was leading one of the leading companies in the in its industry for five six years. Okay. Uh, by the time Chinese newcomers came to the market, we were very much outpaced by the volumes they pushed, by the lead times, by the costs. So it lasted, but well, not long enough. But it's an experience. No, for sure. So when you guys were raising these funds, um, did you have a specific target? Did you go after uh, institutional money? Uh, you were a startup, so there's a position where you'd fit in that would be best. What was the position that you guys took? And obviously you raised funds, so it worked. Um, it's very rare that you give money back, but understand the circumstance. So how did, uh, how did you guys go about that? Was there planning, anything strategic about it, or it was kind of a buckshot spray, you just won at everybody? It was, uh, well, first of all, obviously trying to round up the people who are much closer to the industry itself, who know what they're talking about and uh, who might actually use um, some of the material. So we started with the close trading companies. Japanese trading companies are famous for trading all the kinds of material. So that was one of the big sources of funds. The other idea was to get some from the venture capital, which we did, but that was the part which we, well, we basically gave it all back because it was raised for the project rather than for the company expansion. So that, that's the reason why it sounds strange, but we did not consider it as a loan. We were considering it as a part of the new venture set up for the specific purpose, but uh, well, since it didn't there was no need for it anymore. We just decided to dissolve the company and give the funds back. But, uh, well, there were other finances, uh, financing schemes available. Uh, so at the moment, let's say we did buy lots of new equipment and we paid out right cash in it. The uh, company was quite profitable at that time. Uh, when the need for the financing came, we just leased all the equipment to the leasing company and used the proceeds as well. So there was a, there was a bit of a strategy. You were going after like-minded people in the space. Obviously, you got hit with the 2008 financial crisis that kind of caused all of these other problems um, and kind of trickled down everywhere else. I'm kind of assuming, plus you have also... Uh, the Chinese companies coming in and kind of dominating the market on price and resourcing and whatnot. So now obviously there's a lot of big players in the solar space. It's taken off in the last, I would say the last five to six years, it's really kind of shifted and grown. Is there anything that you learned from that process to kind of where the markets have shifted? Is it really about duration? Is it about really buckling down and raising as much money as you can um, to weather the storm? Is there any advice you can kind of give? Because a lot of startups are going to go through this. They're going to go into a market. They're going to raise some dollars. Then they're going to get high competition. They may have not built a strong moat around their business. But at the end, you guys had to make a strategic decision on either to fold in or, and move on to other projects or continuing the fight. Obviously, you chose the, the latter. But is there any advice that you would see now based on your experience that you might have taken a different approach in? Well, it's easy to say after the things happen, but sure. Sure. <laughs> uh, what we didn't do is, well, what we did do is underestimate the competition. Uh, at that time, the semiconductor silicon was really a light kind of manufacturing business. There were probably five, six companies globally who were able to do the quality which is required. And most of our engineers, myself included, I'm, although I'm not an engineer, were really dismissive about the investments by the Chinese company, by Chinese companies into the field, saying, okay, they will not be able to bring the quality required within that short period of time. They will not be able to perform at the amounts, the volumes they're planning, et cetera, et cetera. So one thing was, uh, yeah, underestimating the competition. That's probably the biggest one which was the reason why we gave it up. The other reason is probably juggling too many balls at once. So 
trying to secure the contracts from supplier paying tons of money for them for the prepayment and then trying to establish our own manufacturing facility at the same time and should really, should have really focused on what we want to do i mean it's easier to get out of one of the things but not of both of them at that time well there's, so, there's yeah. two interesting things there that you really touch on and uh i, I like that one on the competition side that you had basically if you cover it two two faults that you could have corrected um, and it's interesting because a lot of investors, when they're talking with um, startups, they're always asking them what their mode is. And I think a lot of times a startup will think in their mind, oh, I'm good. We've got the product. No one cares. We're in our own little world. We're doing our own thing. No one's ever going to compete against us. And you really hit home that uh, aspect that you guys were raising money, driving a business. You'd been in the space. You were leaders in the space. And you still had a competitor come in or competitors come in and really dominate and take over the market, causing you guys to walk out and, and lose big time because you obviously folded the company. So uh, it, it, it's scary. Like you don't realize the impact. That sounds pretty, I'm making it sound big because I think it really is big. Um, so I, like, what would be the emphasis that you would put on the competition? Like if you guys missed this and you guys were a big business, what would you recommend a startup does in order to not miss this? the competitors and not underestimate what they're going to be able to do um, and come after you. Is there a way that you can gauge this better? Is there a way to uh, manage competition? I'm really curious as to how you feel that could work out better. Frankly, at that time, amount and volumes coming out of China, probably the, whatever our efforts would be, would have been doomed. So the, prices, the costs we were having was no way comparable to what the Chinese competition had. So it was a matter of time for us, frankly speaking. It was a not very, let's say, highly value-added product. It was a very technical product, very good quality, required lots of know-how and efforts and uh, good personnel, but that didn't stop Chinese to replicating whatever we were doing. So. Yeah, uh, well, for the startups, uh, if they are in the similar position, try to out-innovate everybody else. That's, that's the only thing you can do. That's the thing to stay on top of the market. Innovate, think not just improving your product, innovating in, uh, let's say, business model, improving your cost structure, improving your manufacturing capacities, streamlining your uh, outputs, Streamlining your inputs and outputs for the material. So that, those things also part of innovation. And well, uh, consider what Toyota was doing as a lead, uh, I mean, timely deliveries and timely output. So that's uh, that thinks innovation not in the just in the technology, but innovation in a way of how to manage the business, how to reduce the cost, how to make it at least comparable to what China can do. I mean, the, obviously the salaries are one major thing for the most of the industries. Uh, automation is probably would have been very helpful in our case, but uh, there was no technology at that moment. You really have to be forward thinking when you're in this type of business or in any business, you really have to be thinking not just now, but in the next six months, eight months or two years from now, what is the competition going to do? Are there other established companies that see that you're getting a, you're doing a land grab and they decide to ramp up and resource up and China is a competitor, but there's many competitors around the world that can obviously do the same thing that China did to you guys. Um, so you mentioned that resources are a big one. That's always the biggest cost to any company. Um, would have there been opportunities for you guys to open up an office in China so you could compete better? Um, not that Japan, Japan, in Japan, it's very expensive. I've been there a few times and I do know that, um, overall it's an expensive structure, but it also has a very hardworking community. So a lot of brain power that's going on in Japan. So you're competing against many versus a few, but at the same time, I'm sure you can balance out somewhere in order to maintain competitiveness. If not, we'd all be folding our cards because China is going to come after us every single moment we turn. So um, what allows you to be better 
um, tactful at that so that you can be a startup that survives, especially if you find yourself into a very good vertical like solar, like um, the weed side of things right now, uh, semiconductor. There's a lot of players that are slowly starting to build up. Uh, Zoom as another one, uh, you know, they've taken off in the last little while because of the platform and how they appealed to everybody. So is there any advice that you would say, you know, you, you really got to build IP, better IP or stronger IP, or what is it that's going to really help protect you a little bit better so that you can run faster? Well, if you see that the, the collapse is imminent, you probably the best way to plan it is to be sold out to some of those Chinese competitors. That's one of the ways to exit that. We actually kept up for a couple of years after the market collapsed. Uh, well, assuming that in 2007, one, one watt for the solar panels was around seven, eight dollars. By 2010, that was around one dollar. So what that, you, there are limits on what kind of cost cutting you can make. So we had a, let's say, fully automated uh, warehouse. There were no people present manage all the inventory so that was kept us afloat for one year maybe more uh, but again the the market collapsed that much so there was no really potential for the company like let's say not big volumes to survive not big volumes but at the same time 2008 i think our sales were close to what, 200 m yes so it grew to quite decent size but we all know what happened after. So was there also um, something to focus on? Was, was there a lack of growth in your sales side to be able to offset your expenses and your costs? Like, was there a way to maybe shift into a different vertical, uh, reevaluate where you were positioned to see if you were solving a different problem um, instead of staying course? Like, did you have to pivot at all to be competitive? And is that uh, at well? that time the solar market was very much dependent on the government policies. So it was artificially demand, artificial demand in two thousand seven, eight, because Spanish government was paying quite decent money for the electricity production from solar. By two thousand nine, when they stopped paying that, basically the whole market, which was focusing on that forty percent of the global market in Spain, had nowhere else to go. It came up, the other markets came up, the other markets keep growing, uh, but uh, it was very difficult to offset the uh, very high growing Spanish market at that time. And, uh, but looking back, uh, so today, at that time, what annual setup, annual volume of manufacturing was around five gigawatt hours. Today it's probably 150. So it all worked better for the let's say for the industry, for the environment, especially. So I'm not complaining about the experience we had, but like I said, it might be not the right place to have that kind of business, which didn't have much of the high value added. For sure. Uh, <clears throat> and you mentioned, and I, and I also feel that this is um, pretty crucial in any business, especially in a startup world, is that when you start a business, your excitement is that you've got money and you want to hire a lot of people. And you just want to tackle this problem like crazy um, and start managing a lot of um, internal resources to move forward. And you mentioned that as you guys were growing, you were trying to cut costs and find ways to eliminate barriers that would allow you to grow in the market and be competitive. Uh, I think that there is a, maybe a misunderstanding of what and how you can be competitive internally. And you, know, you can generate sales and you can uh, optimize and innovate, as you mentioned, which is huge in your business. But from a competitive standpoint, there's also internal competitiveness, which is how do I reduce my overall cost structure to allow myself to have more dollars to spend in marketing and sales to generate more value so that I can stay in the market longer? Um, did you guys find that you became at one point just very resource heavy and you were burning a lot of cash flow each month and that was affecting your long-term strategy? And then that's where you decided to pull back. And what kind of advice would you give to paying attention to these things? Because I'm sure you face this with startups now um, on the investment side where they're growing really quickly, but their costs are tripling and their bottom line isn't. 
So is there uh, some advice that you learned from that instance that might say, you know what, hey man, go a little bit slower. Or is there something that you would recommend to help? I would say that the company, well, they were trying to cut the cost, but the, the real moment of truth came after the company was acquired. I mean, there was a talks to acquire the company by the big Japanese oil producer, which they did. And uh, only after they taking it over the company, there were some reduction in the personnel, cutting the fat. So in a way that required the third party view of what's happening within the company and what's happening in the industry to adjust to current realities, to the situation. So in a way, it doesn't have to be acquisition by the third party to, to be able to see it from outside, but you can, all the startups can also benefit by hiring consultants or by taking a look at as a third party. Well, it's difficult if you're insider in the company, but uh, probably one of the ways to deal with hiring consultants, even if you're a startup, you will probably have some fat which is which you will be able to make it leaner, let's say. But again, the purpose of the the small companies are most probably are looking way forward to that they will grow, they will need that personnel at some point. And uh, given that there is no like major obstacle like the whole industry had in 2008-9, and the company kept growing, so the consultant, the restructuring, the cutting costs, probably not the highest priority for majority of the startups, I would say. And uh, it will come at some point, but uh, the sooner you start trying to, let's say, improve your operational efficiencies by reducing the extra fat, is the better your company will turn out in the long term. So for the startups, I would recommend to, well, it's very, I would say, common thing to do, lean, lean startup, is it? Well, the lean startup is certainly what they talk about, but when you raise a lot of funds, everybody tends to want to hire and move quick. So, and they feel the more resources you have, the faster you can move. And I think you kind of just talked to it that it's not always the case. It's that, not always the case, unfortunately. Yeah, and you need, to, you need to evaluate yourself on every step as you go. And you mentioned that bringing a consultant in can be something of, of assistance. And um, I think there's a point in time where you grow to a certain stage and maybe that's 20, 30 people. And then maybe at that point, uh, based on your burn, and, and uh, maybe that's a point where you bring somebody in or it's on the finance side, your C, uh, CFO, and they're doing some sort of evaluation on the company to say, hey, are we in the right position? Are we burning the right cash? And are we matching that up to how we're growing the sales on the business side? Um, that allows you to stay more competitive is fingering out, not just on resources, but there's other things that you end up spending on. Uh, as you mentioned, there was a big shift in product costs that have that changed. Well, maybe we should look at inventing a new product or working with a different type of product. So there's always, and that goes into the bucket of being innovative. And I think that in the lean startup phase or in any business, you always have to be looking at those um, those three pieces, I guess, to be allowing yourself to be more competitive. And competitive doesn't just start with somebody on the other side of the sea. It starts internally figuring out how can I be innovative? How can I um, reduce my overall cost and burn? And then how do I grow the business to ensure that I can offset some of these to allow myself to have some free cash flow? Another, let's say, trigger for the re-evaluation of your operational expenses of your burn rates is, well, could be the next financing round. The new investors will be looking at your company with the magnifying glass. So there might be some suggestions on what to cut and where to cut. And that could be one of the ways to, again, look at it as a third party. Don't always have to rely on the consultants or the acquisitions. Uh, that's a good point. So because you're kind of steering in this consultant slash investor side that they can give you help, um, does this allow you to kind of stand behind the um, advisors, investors, mentors, that these are good for business and they're good to help um, companies move forward, especially in an early stage? I would like to consider myself, let's say, semi-smart investor. I don't like the dumb money 
just dumping it and waiting what happened. So if there is a way I can help the company to be better, to grow faster, to have higher sales, to improve, to innovate, that's probably, I will try to add the value by, I don't know, advisory or, or the consultant or the uh, board observer at some point, yeah. But uh, any company requires help. I mean, whichever the stage is. And uh, third party view on the company is always important, I would say. You never know what you don't know. Well, 100%. And the only way to learn is to pay some money and find it out as you go, right? So uh, that doesn't have to be paid. I mean, for the startups, I think it's a very good opportunity to get some advisors from within investors and try to use that potential knowledge towards the future growth. For sure. So uh, there was one thing you touched on before, which was you could have sold yourself to a competitor and things like that. So there is a structure around there. Is that something that, um, and startups don't tend to look at this because it's probably out of their realm, but is there an opportunity for a startup to evaluate a market and decide, you know what, maybe if we could raise X amount of money, we could go in and buy this other startup and this would give us traction to this side of the product or to this um, extra cash or resources, whatnot. Is that something that you've ever, ever worked with on your startups and considered, or is it something that's more later stage series A, B, C, where you start to look at acquisition um, to grow quicker? Well, I didn't have personal experience with that, but uh, I think that acquisition question will come up at any stage. I mean, depending on the uh, needs of the founders and their ambitions, but uh, exit, I mean, acquisition as an exit is always one of the ways to go ahead with the company, with the natural progression of the company. So why not starting planning for it from the beginning? If you realize that the some third party can do it better, faster, cheaper than you can do. If you feel that you can add from within the big company to grow your business even further, why not? So like it's it. On, it should be always on the plate. Yeah. I guess that's where that consultant comes back in where they're giving you some right feedback to help you move forward. Uh, I hope it, they will listen to him at some point, but yeah. <laughs> no, I, I agree. So, it's interesting, again, the experience you have, I think that carries well, so well into what startups are looking for, what they're trying to understand about their business. They're usually new, their first time. So there's a lot of things that they're not going to understand and they got to learn as they go. So I think that that is some great feedback around those areas that we were just chatting to. Um, maybe we change a little bit and give us a little bit of information on, or insight on what got you wanting to invest? Where did, where did that come from? Is it just a, I think I'm going to go invest in some startups. What, what kind of moved you into the space? What got you excited and interested in early stage companies? Uh, I'm, I have been always nerd. I like new things. I like new gadgets, technology. So I have been keeping pulse on most of the developments. Well, not most of them, but at least probably B2C ones globally. So um, the real trigger for me was uh, still in Japan, joined the big corporation and the venture division of it, and looked for quite, looked through the number of quite a number of startups which we would be able to invest. And at some point, uh, presented to the investment committee within the company. Some of them were shut down. Some of them didn't even reach the investment committee. Some of them were not the synergy thing. So. And looking back, I realized that there were so many missed opportunities I should have put my money personally because uh, you never know. I mean, it, it was interesting idea at some point. I was thinking, okay, I should put my money. If the company is not doing it, I'll put it myself. And uh, didn't end up going because I, I assumed there was some conflict of interest doing my personal things on the company expense. So decided to go solo and do it myself instead of relying on the company to keep my, let's say, keep my deal flow coming. So you, 
So in the process of investigating startups, you actually started to find yourself more interested in working with them and investing in them personally than you did in what your core, at the time, your core role was. So that kind of moved you over the line. And when the opportunity came, you decided, you know what, I'm going to go in this direction. And I find that this is a much better opportunity for me. And I like the idea of being able to get in with an early stage company. Exactly. I think it's some frustration might have been involved that seeing that great startups are not being, not getting interest they deserve from the big companies. And that's probably one of the main triggers. I like that because when I worked for a big corporation and I did my own thing way back, um, I remember uh, I would bring startups into Loblaws at the time and uh, I would bring them in and I would think they were the perfect fit for the businesses I was running. And I remember one day I, I had this, um, a real network that was built out. It was quite large and it was around um, the soccer mom, if you will. And the business was doing really well. And I was pitching it in to be a brand that would be associated with all of our e-commerce platforms that it was approved by moms. And uh, at the time, my, um, my boss said to me, we're not here to build a startup's company. And I was like, really? What? This is doing very well. Like, they have millions of people that are part of their network. They would actually be very supportive in what we're doing. And uh, they felt that because they were a large corporation, that they would be helping this startup, not realizing that this startup would actually be helping them build a community uh, around what they were doing. So I totally, uh, totally agree with you that sometimes the mentality isn't there on supporting and helping uh, a smaller business. And ultimately that moved me into working for a startup and investing in startups and then building out everything that we do with startups because of a very similar occurrence where I didn't understand uh, what the premise was that if someone was building something that was strong, that they wouldn't be a great fit to build something bigger and better together. So uh, I, I totally support that. Uh, Welcome to my world. Yeah. Well, they say the reason teachers become teachers is because they didn't get the educational system that they like, and they feel they can go in and correct it. So it's been proven that that's why you become a teacher. So I guess we're following the same uh, line of information is that we're feeling we were short shifted and we're going to exactly. go for the little guy and make sure that they win. Exactly. Well, that's, uh, that's fantastic. That's not a bad problem at all. So it's, uh, it's good that there's uh, um, more and more people like yourself that are finding their way into the startup community, but finding ways to support them and not just through financial means, uh, but as you mentioned, uh, through mentoring and other pieces that are going to help these companies move forward. So uh, in that, you did mention the mentoring and advisor standpoint, and I'm a big fan of this, um, is that uh, something that you provide to uh, the companies you invest in, do you choose to want to be part of them at some capacity? If it's thought through investment early on, it's just through helping. Do you really dive into that with the startup and spend a lot of time helping them explore the business? Or is it something you only do once you've made an investment? I, well, the, if there is need, if startup is really needs the support from me, I'll do it even before the investment. And it is always fun to watching company grow. And if there is something which I can help with that, why not? I, mean, I might not be personally interested at that moment, but later stage. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. No, feel myself important, feel myself wanted. No, that's good. And do you have a, do you have a favorite part of investing? Mm, exit? <laughs> Yes, exits do work pretty well, I guess, in the uh, the short or long term of uh, early stage investment. Um, but I guess that could be your favorite part. I haven't heard that one yet as being the favorite part, but it's a, it's still valid. It's, it's an important part, yeah. Well, exit is one. That's probably not always guaranteed, but that's that's the beauty of it. You have one, okay, that's, I did something right. Yeah. Uh, Another thing is seeing the company grow. I mean, it's fun to watch little two, three people company maturing and becoming something formidable force in the industry at some point of time. And uh, it's uh, 
well, it's partially your contribution as well, I bet, I guess. So it's not really my child. It's really like looking at your nephew's growth, but still, yep. still fun. No, I like that. Well, I, I think that uh, we've learned a little bit about raising some funds, learning different ways to operationally structure your business, things you need to look for, reducing burn, your overall sales. There's a lot of things that can help balance your business out and things that can protect you from, uh, as we said, the big beast in the room is always the competition and people forget about that. And I think the way you got into the market and the way you're trying to help, I think is huge and it's super valuable. And I think a lot of, um, I think a lot of founders or business people should look at startup world just for all the reasons that you shared, because I think it brings a lot of value back into the ecosystem. And it also is a way of giving back and supporting. And you've got the wins at the end, which are the exit or watching a company grow. And you don't get to see that very often. Uh, you know, every time we, we throw money into something, we expect and hope that it's going to grow and it doesn't happen every day. So when you do see it, it feels good that you made, like you said, the right choice. So kudos. And I'm uh, obviously super appreciative of the fact that um, there's lots of uh, good people coming into the market uh, in this space like yourself. So I think now what we're going to do is we have a few questions left that I want to ask, but I'm going to dive into our rapid fire questions. Okay. Perfect. All right. So we'll get started. How many companies or dollars do you invest in per year? Three to four. Okay. Uh, in the beginning, it was one or two, but yeah, normally three, four. You're progressing and you're getting better at it. So that's brilliant. I hope I am. And uh, I think the, my match was six companies last year. Okay. Well, that's, that's awesome. That's obviously a, it's a good thing. Uh, do you do follow-up investments or is it a percentage of your investment portfolio that you'll make reinvestments in? Uh, there were, among the investments I've made, there were two companies which were asking for the follow-ups. Uh, I did a, go ahead with just one of them. Okay. So you're 50-50. So you're going to evaluate it and decide. Exactly. Sometimes uh, the amount I can contribute doesn't really make sense for the next round. So I just sit okay. it out. I completely agree with that. And if you can make that statement, I think that that helps the startup so that they can prove uh, that from where they are and where they've gone to, that they don't need the angel money to keep going, um, that it's time for uh, higher growth institutional money that's going to benefit them. Yep. Any notable portfolio companies that you would like to share? Notable. Hmm. Uh, the one of the recent companies I did I'd say partial exit is the Aspect Fire out of Vancouver. So to make it simple, it's a, they have developed 3D printer for human tissue. So at the moment they can print human organs using their 3D printer. At the moment they are selling it for testing the drugs, selling it to the pharma companies. Hope in future they will be able to grow on what they have and grow to actually physical organs, which instead of waiting for the transplant, list, they just print it out and put it in. Brilliant. Hopefully. Yeah, they're working together with a few Japanese, big Japanese chemical companies. And I think the announcement was that working on the liver, that's, that's bloody difficult organ to make. They have, the liver has 50, more than 50 different functions. That, they're going in with the liver first is really if i'm outside i would say ridiculous but well let's see how it works out well it sounds pretty impressive so that's uh that's a great one to share thank you uh what verticals do you focus on i do not have a preferred verticals uh i i think i'm agnostic but i try i prefer to invest into b2b to companies uh have not enough confidence to go ahead with B2C ones. Okay. Uh, do you have any preferred terms that you like to invest on? If it's pref shares, common, notes? Not really. Not really. I, I try to, let's say, value the company, like the conditions the company set themselves first. And go ahead with that. But uh, yeah, if I might. Uh, negotiate on the valuations, but the 
prefer it or commons, that is not, no different for me. Okay. Is there a timeline for your investments? Like you like to do things quickly, one to three months, six months, a year, anything like that? I would say normally it takes two, three months to from the first initial pitch or handshake to actually writing a check or earning the money. Okay. Sometimes it's faster. I think the fastest was probably two months. Okay. The longest was probably half a year. So. All right. Do you look to lead rounds? Um, if I have to, if there is no person better than I, than me, who can do that. Uh, yeah, I did lead to the investments. Okay. Do you take board seats? I prefer not to. I still believe the company has to prove themselves and uh, I prefer the observer one to be able to see what's happening, but not to influence the company on what, on the daily, well, not daily, the strategic decisions. Is there any other due diligent work that you prefer to have in order to make your decision? Is there anything that stands out in all your investments that you need to know that the business has this? Like co-founders or um, a P&L or revenues? Like, is there anything that just helps you make a decision if you're going to invest? I want to see how flexible the companies are, the ability to adapt to things and well, probably that very much depends on the CEO and the, the, the team. Uh, I want to see what their core product is. Is it technology, is it business model, and maybe a combination of both. And uh, see if the company is able to operate beyond the comfort zone. I mean, I, I, I like challenging them on why don't you do that before? Why don't you go ahead and after this client instead of this, or after this industry instead of the one you're planning to originally. So sometimes work, sometimes not, but. Okay. Is there anything from your previous investments, uh, including the one that's the exit, is there any underlying piece that you see makes a startup successful? Any information that you want to share, like one or two points that say, you know, do these three things, damn it, and that's what's going to make you successful or at least on your way to it? Uh, at the moment I have what, 15 or so investments and none of them bankrupt. So probably getting investment from me is one of the keys. Just, like just kidding. Like <laughs> uh, not really. The, I think the pandemic, I think they equal to everybody and whatever you do, hard work, all the connections, it might be annual. Some companies prosper in this environment. Some companies do not. So probably, the, like I said, the ability to change, ability to adapt. Okay. No, that's a good point. Um, can you share one story of something more heartfelt that you were working with a startup? You didn't think that they uh, really were going to make it or they had a problem or something wasn't right or they got hit with a problem, you were excited about them, then you weren't sure, and then they overcame adversities and became a successful company and you were super proud of them. Is there something there that you can share or even just some sort of crazy story that you can't believe happened and you netted out in the wind and it's, everybody's happy? Um, there was a, still within, while working with the big corporate, uh, I was looking at one company out of Germany. Uh, what were they were trying to do is to slice silicon for the semiconductor manufacturing. When people talking about semiconductor silicon, it's basically a huge chunk, very long ingot of silicon, which needs to be sliced, polished and diced. Uh, what they were trying to do is to, they put some putty on, on top of it, super freeze it, do the laser damage points and then just pop it off, cleaving the, the wafer off cleanly with very, very low, uh, low curve loss. So that was the initial idea. I like the idea. I thought it's a cool way to approach the slicing business. What I didn't like is that they're trying to use it for the silicon, which is, like I said earlier in this interview, bloody cheap these days. So I referred to the company, I mean, to the division within my company, I said, okay, I know you're working on the power semiconductors. 
and you need silicon carbide. Similar thing, also ingots, also sliced, but instead of $40 per kilogram, you're paying 1500 for that. So can you give me a couple of ingots so I can send them to them and they will test it and see if it works? Well, it turned out it worked. And I started talking to the company. They were trying to raise a 1 million on 5M valuation. As soon as they did the silicon carbide, they tested successfully. One year later, they were sold out at 150M. Wow. Missed opportunity for me, but yeah, I'm glad I participated and steered them the right direction. And that comes from uh, the startup just working with lots of different people and selling through. Um, and hopefully the people they're working with are giving them ideas and uh, new ways of looking at a problem and they follow through with it and it can pull in some big success. Exactly. So, yeah, I'm really proud of, that was my first solution. I mean, you don't need to follow $40. I mean, the curve loss there is negligible. Yep. If, you, if you can save on $1,500 ingot, that will be probably significant. And yeah, that was a fun project. Nope, that sounds pretty awesome. And kudos for the, the nice save. So last question, uh, crystal ball, the world's changed a lot in the last six months, eight months. Uh, what is the, in your crystal ball, where do you see the world in the next three months and maybe the next three years? Like where do you see the shift occurring? Is there gonna be a specific vertical that people are gonna be focusing on? Uh, or do you think things are going to go back to normal and investments are going to pick back up again? Where are you kind of seeing the world change in the next, uh, I'd say, 12, to, 12 months to 36 months? I wish I had crystal ball. But at the same time, I think the world has changed in the last half a year. Uh, people were saying that the remote work is not feasible. Look at what we've got now. People sitting back at home and working, doing the same things they were doing in the offices. So there will be major changes in, in regard that less dependency on the commercial real estate, less dependency on the corporate real estate. People will spend more time at home. So that's one positive thing, see more, more of the family. Uh, Business-wise, three months, I don't think it will change from what it is now. People are still being very cautious Optimistic, but cautious, I would say. And there is election coming up, so two months is probably better timeline. Uh, three years from now, I think we'll be back to normal with uh, less reliance on office work, reliance on the offline sales. Uh, well, probably that change which the world is experiencing now, shifting for the work from home, shifting for the grocery delivery rather than going and buying them groceries, cloths, whatever. Uh, that will be going back a bit, but the balance will be not as it is last year. So, And the verticals, yeah, whatever you can help to, I don't know, last mile delivery, drone delivery, those things might be interesting, but might be a bit out, out a bit too far. Uh, I'm still looking very optimistic about autonomous driving. That will be the probably last coffin into the work from office. I mean, at least. And uh, things like real estate in downtowns, because instead of living uh, and paying $3,000, you can pay the same $3,000 in a huge place with the pool and uh, taking care of kids, but instead instead of driving in traffic, you'll be uh, shuttled by your autonomous vehicle. But that's probably not in another five, 10 years. So, so verticals to invest within next- but Just progress it out a bit more for another three years. That you will have to start doing investment into that now to actually reap the fruits in five to 10 years. So you have to, well, again, if it's within your, Scope and investment probably should be looking a bit closer. All right, I like it. Well, Bosik, I want to thank you very much for your time today. Um, I take, as I do, I take lots of notes. I'm a big fan. Actually, I was so caught up in the conversation at the beginning, I was like, oh my god, 
I'm not even taking notes, so I started to write. You're not recording that, so. Oh, I know, but I'm always writing down. I want to make sure I get the meat potatoes in my notes. But uh, I appreciate your time. I think it was brilliant. There was a lot of uh, learning just in that earlier part of what you went through with uh, your original business. And I think a lot of startups are going to learn a lot from that. So I appreciate your time. Appreciate everything you said. And one thing that I'll leave it with is what we like to do is I like to leave it with you with the last word. So anything you want to share to the startup audience on something they can look forward to or something they should do or anything that you want to give feedback on, I leave you with the last word to share to the audience. Cool. It's like that talk. Huh? Uh, for the startups, I think, uh, I, I said it several times already, uh, try not to be rigid. Pivot, adapt, change your business model, change your technology, change whatever things you do. The world is not stagnant, world is changing every day and your ability to adapt, your ability to change with the world or change the world it will be probably decisive, decisive in how successful your startup is. And do not just focus on the growth. If you see the good product, if you see there is a market, even if it's niche, go ahead and do it. It doesn't have to be the whole world using it. As, as long as there is a market for the product that you made, that you have developed and companies or people are paying for it, even if it's a small one, go ahead and do that. It's, uh, it doesn't have to be a $3 billion company. You can, it, it could be your next company for the billion one. The first one could be also small start, niche startup, which makes you money, which makes money for your investors and makes you happy. I like it. Makes you happy, and that's big. Well, thank you again, Vasek, for, for all your insights, for sharing, and for giving us the last word. So thank you very much. We'll leave it at that. And thank you. Uh, we'll be in touch again, but thank you very much again for all your insights. Have a good one. All right, too. Thanks, Vasek. Yeah, bye. Well, there you have it. That was fantastic. Like I said, I got all caught up in the conversation that I wasn't taking my usual notes, but... I will say that there was a lot of great insights into his experience, but how that pushed and resonated with the other startups that he works with. And the key one for, for what he talked about was uh, obviously when there's a point in time where you need to figure out if you're in the right spot and reducing cost, burn rate, bring in a consultant, talk to advisors, talk to your investors, learn and figure out what's the best positioning for your business, create options. Any insights are going to help you be more stabilized. And if you can reduce that cost, then that allows you to be more competitive. And I think the big subject of the, today's conversation was really around competition, outside and internal competition. I think we forget that internally, there's a lot of things that you gotta be lean around to compete against the outside environment. And on the outside, it's also learning what things you can shift and change because they're coming at you. Everybody sees an opportunity, they see you got growth, they see you got potential, uh, they're gonna come at you, right? Airbnb, Lyft, uh, Uber, all of these different platforms all had competition. And if they weren't there at the beginning, they came after. So uh, always take a look at that. Uh, lots of great insights on how he invests and what he looks for. Uh, but like you said, pivot, adapt, change. Always think about those things when you're in business. You have to know. Be psychotic about your business. Know the ins and outs. Be ready to change and just keep changing. Because you gotta. it's not following the money. It's following the way the customer works and adapts with you and you adapt with them. Learn, pivot, change, grow. Um, I love it. Uh, it was a great conversation with Vosik. He gave some great insights on what the next 36 months is going to look like. Check out the video, like it, and we'll see you guys all very soon.